You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and welcome to episode 108. And uh, I really don't have anything else to, no, to I, say. Just I'm every, sunburnt. Listen, that's, uh, that's every episode when you say the episode number, I'm like, how did we yeah. – how did anyone let us get this far? I'm, I'm just like, we didn't get canceled. The plug didn't get pulled. I'm actually yeah. impressed. Yeah. Now there's uh, pressure. There it's, was no pressure in the beginning. You, I just assumed we were going to get podcast, yeah. I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you, <laughs> which is a good segue. <laughs> awesome. So, but that's a, a, a slight nod to today's guest because um, we're joined by Rebecca McMacken. Uh, and Rebecca, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself because you'll do a lot better job than, than I could. Sure. Um, thanks so much for having me, you guys. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I'm Rebecca McMacken. I am an unusually nerdy public park manager in Brooklyn. And I'm director of protoculture at Brooklyn Bridge Park, where I've been for 11 years now. I started right when the park opened, and we finished the park in December. Um, and so it's just been this incredible, incredible process. And, of course, the park is mostly but not exclusively native plants and we focus on creating habitat quality habitat in the middle of the biggest city in the country and trying to merge those two uh often seen as contentious uh things so we for our listeners behind the scenes this this episode has been a long long time coming because we've wanted to have rebecca on but our schedules are so crazy that we we just finally got this together but it's been so long that there's actually news, like there is a change, and congratulations are in order. If, if you would like to share the news with everyone, we would love sure. that. Uh, so I might cry, but I'm going <laughs> to try not to. Uh, so I will be stepping aside as director of horticulture this summer, and I'm going to go – I was awarded a fellowship at Harvard uh, in the Graduate School of Design called the Loeb Fellowship, which is kind of crazy that I'm going to be studying – horticulture at Harvard, <laughs> but um, it's really absolutely thrilling. And, you know, it's been the great honor of my life to, to work here. It is, I'm a fool to, to leave this job and I wouldn't do it if I wasn't fully confident in the team who are ready to step up and, and are really already doing the work. So I'm, I'm not worried at all about, about the park, but I'm sad for myself i i can imagine but what an incredible opportunity because it's not that that many people get that opportunity ever or or a year even uh having looked into it after i saw the news yesterday i was like wow that's that's such a fantastic opportunity how how could you say no i think the thing that is so thrilling to me about it is that this ecological horticulture movement is gaining so much momentum so much notoriety And with the biodiversity crisis really front and center in the public mind suddenly, right, it's kind of, I'm still in a bubble, but like people know about it, right? People talk about it all the time that we are one of the teams who are addressing this, right? Gardeners are are some of the main people who are like in the perfect position 
to change the entire world. And so some of us are doing it in cities. Some of us are doing it on, you know, in ornamental landscapes. Some of us are doing it in farms, but we're all working together to try and, you know, stop the apocalypse. So I'm excited that Harvard is also on board. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, you know, I think, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit, you know, I, I kind of give thanks to COVID in a way. Um, for people having to be at home and looking for a way to to spend time and get out of the house and finding nature again and researching it. And we're, we're finding that our listener or the consumer is a much more educated uh, person at this point, which is extremely exciting. There's such a difference in the last decade, uh, just uh, people knowing about native plants or what a rain garden is or so many other things. So it's it's an exciting time and, and you get to help shepherd that to another level, which mm-hmm. is really exciting. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the numbers, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's like in the tens of millions of people who in the last year got into gardening and horticulture for the very first time. And the vast majority of those people are either growing food or want to help the environment, quote, unquote. And uh, even the statistics about how many people have planted native plants in the, in the last couple of years is, are just off the charts. And so this is really a growing movement of people who care. And I think that that's a really exciting thing, right, is that it's the, with all the issues in the world today, it can be really hard to feel like you're making a difference. Yeah. It's really hard to know where to engage or what you can do as an individual. And this is a way to have a real difference, right? Like you are, you're providing butterfly habitat and you're supporting, you know, nesting birds or what have you. You're literally making a, an existential difference in the lives of those individual creatures. And then you're part of a collective movement that really can bring change, the sort of change that we do need. And it, but in the, also, it gets people connected, right? It gets people active. It gets people used to being an agent of change as opposed to just running around and screaming like a lot of us do the rest of the time. <laughs> but sometimes it takes courage too. Um, one thing I've noticed on a personal level for me as as we make changes on our, our property and we noticed this year when we didn't rake the leaves, we let the leaves that our neighbors felt, ah, it's okay. You know, I don't have to do this. And we only uh, have our lawn mowed every other week. And our neighbor across the street just started, who was religious about doing it, was like, I don't have to do it every week. Like, I can. So cool. Yeah. And it's just nice seeing like everyone relax saying, oh, it's okay if I don't do this. You know, and yeah. it's 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 just nice, and it, it wasn't talked about. We didn't have the conversation. They just kind of noticed, saying, "Oh, it's it's okay now." <laughs> it's also kind of like I feel like I've seen a couple stories in the news where it's like kind of becoming lame to have a giant lawn, right? Yeah. That's yeah. like it's it's like kind of passe now, which is cool to see as well. I think a big part, like I'm all for that sort of like casual shaming but i think a big part of it is also just the changing aesthetics mm-hmm. and and parks like this i'm i'm hoping that we have a role in that as well like if you think about pedo Dolph comes along and he's like you know what seed heads are beautiful seed heads are totally gorgeous why do we cut those down in the winter and so people start recognizing that and just on a purely aesthetic shift they're starting to leave their seed heads up and the change for birds is profound there you know you suddenly have failed to remove this incredibly important resource for all of these animals that evolved with with these seeds and and it's back 
because of an aesthetic shift. And what we try and do in the park, because our park is like a really fancy, chic park, when we try and um, come up with management strategies that we think bolster habitat, um, we, we're hoping, hoping that we're doing our part to shift that, that aesthetic as well and making those wild aesthetics more acceptable so that people can kind of wedge in that habitat in even more formal environments. Well, I, I think this is a wonderful segue to talk about the park because I, I think one of the things that make people okay or feel okay making these changes or learning more is going to public open spaces where they witness it um, instead of a, a – like an extremely manicured botanical garden with a lot of non-natives and things like that. It, it's seeing native plants and learn, not just seeing them learning about them and feeling comfortable with it. So, and, and this is unique because it's not just on the outskirts. It's, it's in New York city. So can we, can we, start, and I, I really think this park is a big help in that shift and, and getting people to think about that, especially when they don't always have access to nature as well or, or feel comfortable with nature so if we could just start off maybe go back a couple steps and talk about the history of, of how this park came about sure so Brooklyn Bridge Park is part of this wonderful movement I think that uh, looks at unused space in cities that used to be um, used for industrial purposes and reclaims them as public space and as green and green space so it's called post-industrial landscape architecture and in this park uh, you know the community that organized in order to design and build the park initially were working with shipping piers that had been built in the 1950s and then fell into disuse almost immediately. These giant shipping piers, a mile and a half of shipping piers that were really just being used as parking lot storage facilities. And uh, developers started circling in the 1980s and the community that lived around the park park did not want sky rises. They did not want private land. And so they really organized and started the conservancy and started the process of turning this into a public park. It wasn't until Mike Bloomberg came along and came up with a financial plan to make it all happen um, that it really, the wheels really started turning and Michael von Balkenberg and Associates was brought in to design the park. It was, construction started in 2009 and we took a solid decade uh, to build the park and uh, and finally completed it just a month ago or a couple months ago at this point. And, and the park is, um, is wonderful in that it, uh, it really does take that mandate of providing ecology to, you know, for, um, for all of many of the, of the animals that live in the city or might live in the city, but also for the people that, that live in the city. MVVA worked with ecologists to try and build these little niche ecosystems that are all throughout the park. That's awesome. I'm I'm happy to say we have a few plants there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have a just few. a few. Just a few. And yeah. You mentioned the different ecosystems in the park. Now they're kind of segmented out, aren't they? Or are they kind of interwoven into each other? It's really I was talking with the designer Michael von Bockelberg today and he said it's a 
it's like a patchwork quilt of ecosystems is really how he how he described the park and and it's a beautiful way of, of describing it and, and super accurate so there'll be a wetland and then it's kind of surrounded by a forest ecosystem that turns into a coastal shrub hillside that runs into a salt marsh and so they are little distinct ecosystems with their own soils with their own irrigation regimes their own plant communities but they all are kind of wrapped up into each other which which can be can be difficult in a maintenance standpoint, but if you're doing the right thing, preferably it's less maintenance overall. Like So that's where I've spent like I've spent a decade <laughs> of my life looking at maintenance, right? Like that's what I'm doing here. And that is we of course we don't think of it as maintenance, we think of it as management or stewardship. Because nothing is getting nothing's the same, right? When yeah. you're maintaining things there like there's this idea that the whole old Doug tell me argument. Um, and things here not only have changed drastically since the beginning, but they're actually designed to change. The beds here are designed so that the trees can mature and that there's a sort of managed succession in the plant communities themselves. And we encourage plants moving around and um, finding the space where they want to live. So there's a lot of, um, of experimental work that we've done trying to take the best horticultural practices that people learn in school, which have nothing to do with a landscape like this, and merge them with ecological restoration techniques Mm -hmm. um, that we can actually use in the park, and then just develop our own techniques that are really based around individual plants and then even the individual animals that live in the park. Like, when we we first um, took over this park and we had to... um, uh, had to figure out how to wrangle staghorn sumac, right? This was 11 years ago, and in my little bubble, nobody knew how to how to plant that as an ornamental plant. It just really, I didn't have a community of people to talk to about that. Um, and so it was in the park. It was planted in this gorgeous, sunny area. And the rhizomes were so aggressive that they would bust right up through the concrete. Wow. It was so, it wanted to, it was... And this is a disturbance-adaptive plant. And so the, the design intent of that plant in that area was that we would coppice it annually and kind of keep it like a smaller plant instead of these, you know, trees that it can turn into. And we found, like with a lot of, a lot of clonal plants, that they respond to just that sort of disturbance by trying to find a new place to live. And so our cutting regime was encouraging them to move someplace else and bust through concrete and asphalt in the walkways, et cetera. And by in any area that abutted a walkway, we stopped coppicing them and they were very happy to live in their own own space. And um, and that's how we manage them. So there's a lot of examples like that where we're just really experimenting, observing, trying to figure out how to how to take care of these um, organisms that we there weren't any books written about quite yet. Well, the nice thing is, you know, at least the sumac were happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little too happy. You know, and with with the with all the ecosystems and the soils, I, I'm trying to, and I always draw a blank on this gentleman's name who worked for New York City Parks that did the talk about the soils. He's Fleischer. No, it was. I, I want to say uh, the last names. Uh, for some reason, I'm thinking Fuller, but he's retired, and I can't Mike think. Mike Fuller. I think so. Where he, he was saying that they found that. Where there were invasives was mainly organic landfill soil, and mm-hmm. they realized that there were only natives growing in the natural soil from New York City. So they started 
any excavations, the soil couldn't be taken out or the sand couldn't be taken out. It had to be left so that they could use it for natural plantings. Um, and I was going to ask about a little bit of the setup for the soils. You have so many different ecosystems, which means so many different soil types. Um, I, I would imagine just that alone, trying to get the right soil for all those ecosystems had to have been difficult. Yeah, it is a huge endeavor, and I am very, very grateful that we have help with it. We um, work with T. Fleischer of F2 Environmental, and he is the godfather of soil, and uh, he's wonderful, and he's designed the vast majority of our soil profiles in the park. So every area of the park has at least three layers of soil specifically designed for it, and we're up to like 30-something different soil profiles in the park. It's because... They've also changed over time, right? There's certain things, a lot of things about uh, how we build the park, how we design the park that we started with, that we have edited over time and changed as we saw how they responded to the conditions. That's And I love that change is a part of it um, I, because if you're having an – this is a, a conversation we have all the time with the natural environment like – do you steward it? Do you not steward it? Do you let it change? Do you have to manage it? And it's it's nice that change is a part of the progression of this park um, because people get to change with it. They get to come in and see the change and notice the change. Um, it, has that been a, a challenge working with that or has it been like an accepted notion? You know, at the beginning, it was it was a challenge, and uh, it was just me working with contractors. And now there is a wonderful and dedicated work crew of eighteen people, and now it's like a joy. It's it's absolutely wonderful um, to be able to sort of encourage plants to do different things instead of trying to control them, which is traditional formal horticulture is all about control. And uh, this is all about just helping plants thrive, like figuring out what they need to be happy. We see ourselves as facilitators, right? Like even even to the point, like we're not actually growing plants, right? Like the plants are, are growing themselves. We're just there to help and try to figure out what they need and, and, you know, hem them in if they're getting too rowdy or move them someplace else. Uh, but we're just trying to make them happy. And that, that's a, it's like a, a better life almost than trying to keep things in shapes that they're not inclined to grow in. Now, okay. whose idea was that to, to so start out? Sure. So that was Michael von Valkenberg and Associates. So they, um, they absolutely, I think, pioneered this idea of managed succession. And, and it was really revolutionary um, at the time where, you know, the, the very idea that a tree might not be the permanent tree in that site, that uh, we're going to start with a ton of trees and end up with the right number of trees for that site. Um, and it's, I don't want to say it was like entirely smooth. It's like a very difficult process to learn how to do it correctly, but I think we have a really good system now. Um, but that was that was something that was done absolutely in restoration ecology, right? That yeah. was a, a technique that came out of that world and then was was attempted in in the horticultural in the public horticultural realm. And it's still pretty controversial. Um, but um, but yeah, that was always the intent. And they they planted you know sun sun adapted pallets, which is what they had to. It was bare bare ground, and so they planted whips of trees and a bunch of grasses and and forbs that were sun adapted and then over time as the trees grew we now have full dense shade and have completely 100 percent replanted the ground layer in big sections of the mm -hmm. park so it's kind of like they do the initial planting 
And then over time, we're coming in behind and like slowly moving that succession along. Awesome. Awesome. So speaking of, of change, and this is totally – now I'm starting to become a little kid because I'm just writing a bunch of notes. I haven't even looked at our questions. Um, <laughs> from from the beginning till now over the last decade, and I would imagine that that there has to be some pretty cool discoveries as far as insects go or wildlife or even plants volunteering that maybe – like because it starts becoming a natural ecosystem. So – yeah. Have have you seen those kind of changes over the last decade? Yes. Like, okay. I think that the, the thing about that is that I think this project has been a wild success. And it, like, really gives me uh, so much hope for what we are able to do as a culture and, uh, you know, as a team to sort of prep cities uh, for um, – insect apocalypse, et cetera, et cetera. It was just a few years uh, after the park opened that we saw the two-spotted lady beetle in the park, and that was a beetle that hadn't been seen in New York State in 30 years. Wow. And it's now, and the populations have thrived throughout um, this entire entire time. We're always keeping track of them, and they've spread throughout the city. And um, and we have gardeners. There's this one wonderful gardener whose name is Pavel, and he's like our insect wrangler. And he has found so many wonderful animals. Like there's Bombus ruvidus, the great golden northern bumblebee, and that is a S1 critically imperiled um, bumblebee in New York State that is thriving. In, in the park and in the city in general. This is, it's in, an interesting bee. It's like an urban bee. It doesn't actually want to live in a, on a farm with, um, you know, the diseases from agriculturally managed bees. It doesn't want to live in suburbia with all of the chemicals that people throw on their lawns. This bee is miserable in those environments, but in the city, it's perfectly happy to the point where we were trying to figure out where it wanted to live. We we're tracing it around. I literally have people like chasing bumblebees trying to find out where their <laughs> nests were to be like what can we do to support you and um and we have this big grassy these big grassy berms where we have a lot of bumblebees nesting at the base of bunch grasses which many species do that and we thought maybe this one was there and one of the gardeners got stung on one of the on one of the berms and we're like okay great this is we found Bombus Ruvidus. Uh-huh. sorry Reza that you had to find out in this way but <laughs> hooray and he showed us where it was a pile of rubble that this was a bee that like was like no thank you to your habitat like I'm gonna go live under a pile of rocks and bottles and like some discarded tools and so this it's just interesting to me that there's there's these animals that are really excited to live in cities and even our like refuse is like could be real good habitat for them yeah. what's interesting to me about that is what did they do before there was a city because I'm assuming that the species didn't evolve in the last I guess it could have evolved in the last 300 years my but sense of, with this animal and i don't think yeah. anyone knows the exact you know reasons for the population decline but my sense is that it used to be quite abundant throughout various types mm-hmm. of land use but with the issues of insecticides and and disease that it was kind of forced into these little refuges of yeah. you know a city right that mm-hmm. we are we are able to provide this this space for these animals that can't quite survive in those other areas yeah that's just an interesting thought that popped in my mind i'm yeah. like i'm yeah where, where do they come from because there's other animals that that well, thrive sure. in cities as well i know oh, yeah, um, like with, all the raptors yeah. right we have we have endangered raptors mm-hmm. that are like thriving in this park because they can nest in the bridge yeah 
That's yeah. uh, speaking of animals in the park too. Is true at one point you had goats on the payroll, correct? <laughs> yes, <laughs> they were. Uh, they were so wonderful. They were. It was really, really fun to be goat herds for a summer. Um, so our berms. We have these thirty-five foot high, sound attenuating berms. The piers are these like. You know, it's a long, flat rectangle out on the water. And at the, the city side of that rectangle is a highway that runs across the length of the park called the BQE. Okay. And Robert Moses, decades ago, <clears throat> needed to put this highway through Brooklyn and cantilevered it off the edge of Brooklyn so that it wouldn't disrupt the very fancy wealthy folks up in Brooklyn Heights. And so now that we have a park, there's like literally a highway hanging almost over our park. Mm -hmm. And so what the designers did were build these berms as sound attenuating berms so that the the sound of the BQE and the pollution from the BQE would not rain down on the park. And so these berms are wonderful. They're experimental. They're beautiful. And the first one was an abject failure from a horticultural perspective because we did not know how to manage it at all. And it was eroding and covered in weeds within a year. And we couldn't really walk on them because, again, like every step was just erosion coming down. We couldn't use herbicides to manage the weeds because this park is managed entirely organically and we didn't want to break with that. And so we experimented with bringing in goats in order to manage the populations because we wanted the birds to be grasses and goats will preferentially eat forbs and, and leave the grasses until the very end. And so the plan was to have these goats that would sort of like move along and once they finished an area, we'd move them to a different area. And they were pretty successful, honestly. It worked pretty well. Um, and they ate all of our thistle. But it, it's really like a multi-year uh, strategy when you do use it for okay. um, ecological restoration. And the, the reason why we stopped the program wasn't sadly because of the goats, but because the fence to keep the goats in. This is New York City, and you can't just have a goat, like, with a six-foot fence. I mean, they jump it, but even, anyways, you know, someone's going to steal your goat. Someone's going to come and eat it, or who knows what, and you, like, have to really, and so the fence was this, like, totally, we couldn't rationalize um, doing it, but it was very, very fun. It was incredibly, and then this exact same goats went to Prospect Park and are now eating weeds, and we can go visit Awesome, awesome. So before I forget, the gentleman whose name I couldn't remember was Mike Feller, uh, former chief naturalist. So, um, I was going to say, you, you mentioned Prospect Park, and I know they've been doing some similar things. What are some other parks that kind of, I don't want to say copied Brooklyn Bridge Park's no. idea, but like that kind of took that model and, and tried it at their own place? So it is an absolute, it's a growing movement, right? Um, I so look forward to the day that there is like a whole group of us all working together, all doing this stuff together. Uh, but right now there's very few of us. There's other parks that are organic, like Battery Park City. Um, and uh, and there's other institutions like Mount Cuba that have always focused on native plants and ecology and then strategies for encouraging that. But as far as a public park that is both organic and really trying to function ecologically, I have not found um, another another park that, that fits that same bill. I am hopeful that over the next five years that is absolutely going to change. I know the Vancouver Park System is doing some amazing things with their meadows. Um, there's a lot of people that are moving in that direction, and it is actually my hope, uh, to put this out there, to start a club 
of people who are managing um, public parks ecologically and that we can all meet quarterly and just talk shop. And so I, I really do think that this is, this is something that is, um, is absolutely growing. And then, you know, this park in the summer is a cloud of butterflies, right? Like how do you not want that in, in your park? It just doesn't make any sense. So I think that this is, this movement's just going to balloon once people see the results. Do you like officially or unofficially get to talk to some of the other parks, uh, the other uh, people in similar positions in parks across New York City? Like is that a network for you already or is that something that kind of lacks a little bit? I mean, we're all friends, okay. right? And we're always so like one fun thing that we did is um, – uh, we found this, but Pavel, of course, found this bumblebee in the park called the um, a blueberry digger bee. And it's not an uncommon bee outside of New York City, but in New York City, it's very rare because it needs to feed its babies blueberry, and blueberry has a tough time on our alkaline soils. And so we found this bee in the city, which is really exciting. And then we looked at iNaturalist and found other really small populations of the blueberry bee. And then put out the call to all of our friends who work in the various parks and public landscapes and everyone's planting blueberry plants to try and link these populations and make little corridors for this little blueberry bee. And so we all talk about that stuff, you know, I'll talk to the parks department when they want to do a pollinator initiative. Um, We're all trying to do this work together. And quite frankly, New York City is doing awesome stuff with it. I, I could not be more thrilled with the momentum behind the New York City ecological horticulture scene right now. It's and, very cool. And there's so many other cogs too, nonprofits like New York Restoration Project yeah. that that is willing to, to be a part of it. It is very unique. Like when we look at other systems, I don't really see a system like that with the support network. So one, I think one of the reasons why we're able to do this work and other parks really struggle is because I think we are arguably one of, if not the only properly funded park in the entire country. Mm. We have an operating budget that gives us the room to actually properly manage the park. And that's because of Mike Bloomberg and this financial system that he put in place. But that is absolutely not the case in the vast majority of parks everywhere. They're just always struggling, always underfunded, always you know, not being able to hire enough people to do the work. And then if they do hire them, they're temporary or they're underpaid and like not invested. And that's just not the case for us. And so, you know, my work and many people's work here as public servants, I really consider myself a public servant is to not only take care of the land, which I, you know, do a lot of, but also kind of think about a broader sense of public service. Like what can we do to the, for the broader public horticulture community? What can we do for the broader ecological horticulture community? What sort of resources can we share so that other people who don't have the resources that we have can do this work as well? So we have created resources on our website that everyone can go to, which is um, brooklynbridgepark.org. And we have documents that are, Things like we just put out a mulching guide. So how to mulch from an ecological perspective, how to weed. We have a database of all of our all of the weeds that we have in the park and how we manage them and are the seeds like germinated, et cetera, et cetera. And we have butterfly databases and bee databases for all of the practices that we employ in order to cur- encourage those animals as well in the park. And and people use them. And so that's that is our goal is to not only create this wonderful park, but to create the systems that other people can take to go do this sort of work 
elsewhere, not just the information, but like the method to discover, because it's going to be different in Arizona. It's going to be different in Vancouver. It's going to be different in, you know, depending on your resources, wherever you, if you're also in New York city. Um, but there's some basic strategies that everyone's going to need to employ if they're interested in uh, encouraging biodiversity. Well, the interesting thing about that to me is that you're you're treating the park as if it's a living university. Mm-hmm. You're you're doing the research, you're doing the studies, you're sharing that information. Something that you would consider coming out of the university, but coming out of a park. That's yeah. about as unique as you get. Yeah. What would you say is the coolest discovery you made throughout this whole process? Um, we found stick bugs last summer. Oh, okay. Very, very, yeah. very, Which very. Which is really, really exciting. <laughs> Um, but they're all so cool, right? It's, it's hard to, to pick one. Um, when turtles show up, you're always like, how did you get here? <laughs> Just like amazing that these animals can find, can find the park. Um, and butterflies, of course. I just love, love butterflies. And so, um, so encouraging them, like a flock of butterflies is always the best thing. That's awesome. I have so many questions. I'm trying to figure out which direction to go. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, we, one of the things you mentioned were, were some of the difficult some of the things that aren't difficult and and make you the the park that you are uh, what are some of the difficulties in managing a, a park like this so I think the number one issue for me is the soil and as awesome as our soils are they're engineered which means that um, a contractor takes a giant pile of sand and a giant pile of clay and a giant pile of silt and mixes them all together in very specific percentages with certain types of compost, and then that's our soil. And it's not really soil at all, right? It's kind of a growing medium, and it doesn't have the biological, it doesn't have the processes of cycling nutrients and doing all the jobs of soil. And so that is fine for some plants and some animals and completely unacceptable to different plants and animals. And there's certain um, certain species that we've tried to grow in the park that are just not happy growing here. And, um, and even in the oldest sections of the park, if you dig a hole and you pick up the soil, it does not have colloids. Or if they are there, they're sort of very loosely uh, conjoined that it's just, it's a medium, right? It's still not real soil. And so our, it's this very invisible part of our job, but it is one of the most important things we do is trying to turn this stuff into real soil. Uh, we have some crazy strategies that we've tried and, and, and plan to try, but it, that also matters for irrigation because our soil profiles at most are 30 inches thick um, and in many places far, far less than that. Some people feel like this is the largest green roof in mm-hmm. the country, right? But this <laughs> is just, and, and it's a problem, right? We didn't think we would need to irrigate big sections of the park in perpetuity. We thought we could irrigate plants for establishment, take the irrigation out. That's turned out to be not the case at all because the soils go hydrophobic in 10 minutes in the summer droughts that we have every single year. And so as sadly, it looks like we're going to be irrigating big sections of the park forever. And we've even gotten to the point of like switching out plant pallets in order to get them more adapted to drier soils. But hydrophobic soils, I mean, there's not many plants that'll grow um, in that kind of dynamic and we don't have an aquifer beneath us, right? This is, there's a slab of concrete. So it's just a really different environment to grow plants in. That's- and that was, I'm, I'm glad you said it was like a giant green roof. Cause that was kind of what I started to think. I'm like, man, this kind of sounds very similar to 
a green roof where you have like a solid impervious surface underneath. And, uh, and that's got to be very challenging because how do you introduce so many of those things that plants rely on, like the mycorrhizal associations and the bacterial associations? And it's I, I don't know if it's possible well, to do that. You know, it's funny because as you say that, I was thinking, well, it's been 10 years. I'm sure there's been some type of soil evolution over the last decade. But then I'm thinking, well, in the terms of soil evolution, it's not like the history of, of the world. <laughs> you know, yeah. 10 years is such a small, small time. I'm sorry. It's, no, it's right. it's, I think it's important to remember that plants and animals make soil, right? People mm-hmm. do not make soil. Yeah. Like, yeah. We just get to use it. And that like that, the soil is, it's like a, a home for all these organisms. It's not a growing medium. It's like their home that they're making for mm-hmm. themselves. And so when we are trying to get in there and amend it and da, 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 we're like messing with their house. And, and the, so my thinking is that maybe eventually we, you know, we leave the leaves, of course, and like allow the duff to build up. Maybe eventually we'll get a layer of soil on top of our, you know, engineered soils that'll function better for certain plants. And again, some plants are perfectly fine with this. Some plants are fine, but some plants are just like absolutely never would I grow on that. But we do, you know, we do um, try to do inoculation and and stuff like that. We've even like got gone to other parks and picked up soils from there and brought them into our soils and tried to, you know, get urban, mm-hmm. urban biology into, into the mix. Um, but yeah. And I do think that like um, part of our work here is this idea of constructed ecology, right? It's all kind of Disneyland. It's all, it's all built and it's, you know, within this industrial nest that all of this wildlife and and ecology is happening and there are critics of that and i think you know like absolutely rightfully so um saying that we have like a massive carbon footprint and and stuff like that and i really do see um or that another one that i heard recently was that like if we ever stopped managing it it couldn't survive on its own that was one of the critiques and i was that one i was sort of like people are always going to manage you know ecology anyways Point being, um, we are trying to figure out the strategies that work to build ecology in areas that are, you know, have already been destroyed by development, et cetera. And we are very hopeful that whether or not this park is even here in 100 years, given climate change, that those strategies can help lay the groundwork for figuring out how to do this work elsewhere. And then again, this becomes a community of people who are all working together to figure out how to wedge quality habitat into cities. Um, because, you know, we've, we've obviously seen the population crash, population crashings that are happening right now. And of course, I'm a cynic and think they're gonna, just going to get worse over time. And I think that the more that we can start to wedge this, this sort of habitat into cities, the better a lot of animals that are even doing well right now are going to do over time. You know, there, there's always going to be critiques and there's always there's always someone that's going to see a, a less than desirable effect. But what I would say for that is, all right, if you stop managing it, it would still survive, just maybe not in the form that it is today. It would find a way to survive the same way as if you stop managing the city as, you know, the buildings and things like that. Nature would come back in and take – and Chernobyl is a, a wonderful example of that, how nature is just reclaiming that area and it's i i think yeah it's it's in my opinion it's better than doing nothing oh i totally agree i i I absolutely agree and i think that that critique was 
I not well thought out, but um, but it did make me go out and like buy every species of willow I could possibly find because <laughs> I was like, what plants are like after the apocalypse? Like, what's really going to survive? <laughs> yeah. What's really going to be able to compete with the invasives? Like, I'm just going to go plant a bunch of willows and see what they can. And we'll coppice them now, and then. Once all the people are wiped out, the willows can, like, you know, actually fight. I, th- I think what's important is, you know, to, to silence the critics are the people that use the park and what it means to them. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask is how important is this space to the residents of, of Brooklyn or New oh, York City? I, I think that that's, like, that's what we're really doing here beyond everything else, right, is, like, providing a space for people. And it's the people who, who work here as well as the people who visit um, but that, that there's a lot of gardeners and a lot of ecology people who are always trying to like get people away from the environment or like they think that they're going to hurt their gardens, et cetera. And that's the exact opposite of what we're doing here. We're trying to bring people in. We want them to connect to nature. We want people to walk up to a, you know, floral meadow, um, or see a crow and a kestrel fighting, you know, and, and have these experiences when they're just here for a picnic or a basketball game and, and really connect to nature that way. There was bullfrogs in the, um, in the Pier 1 wetlands today and just like a crowd of people watching bullfrogs just like charmed out of their minds and like turtles as well. And, and that really matters to people. And I, I think that's really what it's all about is, is really encouraging those connections and, um, especially for city folks, right? Like I grew up in Connecticut. I uh, grew up in the woods and, uh, and really took that stuff for granted. But for city kids to be able to look at butterflies and just, you know, play in the dirt and see a worm is like the best, absolute best thing I can imagine. And especially in the times with COVID and everything else that's going on, I would have to imagine that the amount of help it did for mental health uh, from the residents that use it or the visitors has to be almost immeasurable. Um, You know, those are the things that don't necessarily – when you're talking about the worth of a park that necessarily get measured. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's phenomenal that you can't – you know, you can't take that away from that area. It's so true. You know, I think my my sense of that whole revelation is that, um, you know, the world really found out the importance of public space during COVID. Yeah. But those of us who work in, in public space have always known, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, people come here to get proposed, to like propose to each other. People come here when their parents die. Like a, a public park is a profoundly important space for people to just, you know, survive. I mean, there's all so many statistics now about health and well-being, both mental and physical, about being around green space. It's just, it is absolutely critical um, that these spaces are, are just everywhere. Do you, do you see a difference in the last 10 years, how people interact with the park uh, from 10 years ago to today? Are you seeing it being used or I, I would imagine over time, you, you probably get to know some of the gardeners and things like that. Like, it, it, are you seeing a change? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think there's there's more people now. I mean, the park gets over half a million people just in the summers, wow. and um, and the gardeners have really good relationships with the people who walk through the park. We know there's like wonderful lady who's super into spiders. Like we all know her, and the, you know our our local birders. There's now like a whole team of birders where there used to just be one person. Wow. Now there's like a little group of birders who walk through the park 
and there's people who now have ownership, you know, this is their park and, um, and they come here and they have their spaces and that wasn't always the case either. So yeah, I think there's been a big shift and I think that people, you know, the, the service barriers are about to ripen right now. And I was just thinking like what a joy it is to be in a space where they are, it's expected that people will eat them. It's expected that people will pick flowers and like, you know, my husband's at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden and, um, and it's such a precious environment in there and you have to go intentionally. You're not allowed to touch anything. This is the exact opposite, right? Like people get to use this, this park and it's a little rough and tumble and, um, we don't want people like clearing out entire shrubs, but, um, but it's wonderful that people, again, they get to develop a relationship with these plants and with these animals. And, um, and that wasn't always the case, right? It was always in the beginning, things were babies and we couldn't let people touch them. And now it's like, you know, we're surrounded by this riot of available resources. And so it's just wonderful to see people interacting with them in that way. When, when people care, they become active stewards and what, and stewardship is some of the hardest things to, uh, to incorporate for these spaces. So if you have active stewards, what, what's better than that? Totally. That's so true. So true. Um, what are some of the things that people can do at the, the park? I know there's programs. Can you highlight some of like maybe the more popular programs that happen at the park? Sure. So we have a marvelous conservancy who runs public programming in the park and they do great things like have the Met Opera come and sing in the park and movies every weekend in the summer. There's a big party this evening. Um, but they also do a lot of really excellent education programming. They have a wonderful education center uh, that showcases the history and uh, construction of the bridge itself, as well as the surrounding ecology. And they really focus on aquatic ecology, which we are, you know, we're right on the East River, which is brackish and it's not really a river, but there's, it's like a water body between Long Island and Manhattan. So right, right outside of the park is like the Manhattan skyline. And it's this, and there's ferries and boats and just passing all day, every day. And in that water is an incredible uh, world of wildlife that they really try to illuminate for people. And they, they do these sanding operations where they scrape nets along the bottom of the, of the, um, river and then bring in the catch and look at it and then release it again. And they brought in things like seahorses and jellyfish Mm -hmm. and migrating eels and all of these things that it's absolutely incredible to see those animals right you know, in the outside of Manhattan in the water. And I think that just like the city itself is like the terrestrial and aerial parts of the city are seeing this resurgence in wildlife, but the water is as well. And so it's wonderful that they can bring, bring people in and connect them to that kind of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. So what is on the horizon for, for Brooklyn Bridge Park? What is there anything new that, that people can look forward to or any changes that, that, or coming down the road that people should know about? Sure. So I think that the exciting thing, um, one of the exciting things is that we're done building it and hopefully uh, <laughs> we'll pivot and really start on, you know, more education, more interpretation of the landscape. There is almost nobody who comes into this park has any idea about any of the ecology or the fact that we're organically managed, et cetera. I would love to see us doing more of that. And I'm very hopeful that that happens in the future. Awesome. Very. So I we want to 
we wouldn't want to go without talking about you. Like I, we mm-hmm. love talking about the park, but we love getting to know our guests as well. And I've kind of – I've known who you are. I know we're connected on social media and things like that. But we we always like knowing for someone that's so passionate and has found a fit in their life for what they do and their passion, how did – what was the path that took you there? Like how did <laughs> – what, what brought you to ecology? I mean, I did not follow a, tra- I don't even know what a traditional pathway is, but I definitely did not follow it. I, uh, I grew up uh, a wild kid on a small hobby, hobby farm in Connecticut. And, um, I didn't know what to do with my life. I ran around, you know, I worked in fashion. I worked in drag for a while. I, um, I worked for literary journals, um, I did a degree in political science that my dad still refers to as very expensive therapy. Um, and, um, and then eventually I ended up in British Columbia, uh, cause I got a fellowship. So I went out there and, um, and I did a degree in biology and aquatic, aquatic ecology and limnology. And, um, and it was so much fun. And I found that academia in that respect was not for me, but I, kind of fell in with a bunch of Canadian botanists and ethnobotanists and, uh, and just this world kind of opened up to me when people would be able to look at a tree and say, ah, Magnolia grandiflora. Uh, and tell, and like, tell me a bit about its ecology. That to me was magic. That to me was like, Oh my gosh. So you're like, in, this is like an incantation. It was so gorgeous. And I just immediately knew that I wanted that knowledge I desperately wanted it and I just started pursuing it. So when I finished that degree, I kind of, you know, moved into a cabin on my dad's property, lots of confusing stuff around that. But, um, I, uh, was hanging around and trying to figure out what to do with my life. And it was sort of like, am I going to be a yoga teacher? Am I going to be a gardener? I, I was 30 and I didn't kind of like, didn't know what to do with myself. And I didn't think of gardening as, uh, as like a complicated job. Um, and I worked for a native plant nursery for the summer just to have fun and like, just to like, you know, clear my head or whatever. And I just started learning about native plants and started learning about all of the surrounding ecological uh, processes that they are a part of. And I just absolutely fell in love. And then my dad kicked me out and I moved to Brooklyn to, uh, to find a husband and uh, become a gardener for the Parks Department. And, um, and then eventually went back to grad school, went to Columbia, did a degree there, and then came here and came. And for some reason, Brooklyn Bridge Park was like, you're the person to manage this park. And I was like, and it changed my life. It was like the best, best possible scenario for me. I feel so fortunate. You know, when we talk to most of our guests, most of them have followed an unconventional path. Mm. Many were artists, things that, you know, ecology, if, if you're meant to be a part of it, finds a way to grab you and say, you're with us, <laughs> you know, come <laughs> over so here. True. <laughs> yeah. There's not like a high school, you know, guidance counselors being like gardening. You, well, 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 we left because I was saying in, for me in junior high, when you take the test that tells you what you're, you're best suited as an occupation for, I think it was eighth grade or ninth grade. They, they have you take this test and mine came back as a, a botanist and i remember oh. got and my 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 friends were all laughing i was like no way you know i remember just <laughs> like we laughed about it forever and I, I i still wouldn't call myself a botanist but i found find it interesting that my path led here 
And did it influence you? Did that test? Or did you always have that in your mind? No, not at all. It was more of a joke. It, it really was. So it's like, yeah, no way that's going to happen. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where, and I've talked about it on the podcast before. It's, you know, a, a situation where my, I graduated, decided not to go to college. And my dad's like, you're going to find a job. You're going to become part of the working class. Or you're going to become part of the homeless, your, your choice. And, uh, you know, I, my friend was working at a nursery and that was 32 years ago. He got me a job and it just awesome. never let go. So, totally. And it really didn't, you know, I, I would honestly say it wasn't something I truly loved until I started working here. You oh, know, cool. then I found the path saying, oh, this is what it should be. Like this is, it's not just about what looks pretty. It's about ecology. It's not, you know, it's what it, what it means to everything and everyone, not just me. And that that's what made a difference for me and made me see it completely different. And then yeah. I, I, I said a long time ago, you'd have to kick, drag me out of here kicking and screaming at this point. Totally. I mean, it's important, right? It's important work that yeah. we're doing. And that I think is for me, like, I can't be satisfied doing frivolous things forever. Yeah. And it's, to me, it's, Fran, you'd said something like um, people always seem to take this kind of winding path into this and it's not a straight line. And it's, I think it's, there's just a lack of understanding throughout education, probably up until you get into college on this topic. And it's just something that when people find out, it kind of grabs them and they want to learn more about it because they, it, I don't want to say defies. Well, yeah, it kind of defies a lot of the things that you were taught up until that point that the natural world isn't separate from us that we need to to work together and it's goes a lot longer we have all these ties going back tens of thousands of years and um it's and not- it kind of drags you into it because you just i we use the term enlightened and i hate using that term because i don't think we're smarter than anyone else i think it just we just talk to the right people that hook this into this a little bit but um it's yeah, it's one of those things that kind of drags you in and like you can either choose to say, oh, I'm going to dive into this head first or I'm going to be ignorant to it and just <laughs> pretend it doesn't exist. And uh, I think us here and most of the people who listen and or all the people who listen and most of our guests have kind of been in that same people. Are like, well, we need not, to recognize this and, and go in. It's not a selfish field. Like no, you don't go into it for selfish reasons. You, yeah. you go into it because you want to help. And, um, you know, you can do it so many, through education, so many different yeah. ways. Um, but we found that. Most of the people that we deal with are extremely passionate. You don't get that if you don't love what you do, and yeah. and it's funny how it it just draws you in. The the only exception I can think of is Stan Temple from the Aldo Leopold Foundation. He was destined, yeah, yeah. just destined <laughs> to from the moment his. Going to say he was like super selfish. No, no, no. <laughs> well, he when we had him on the podcast, he told the story about. You know, being in love with nature at an early age, he had a single mom, and she would drop him off at Audubon events at eight years old. And an older woman kind of took to him and explained the nature's like to be wondrous about nature. And he didn't even realize till he was older that it was Rachel Carson. You know, (laughs) and then he just happened to go here, and one of his professors was a student of Aldo Leopold, and then he eventually ended up taking the position that Aldo Leopold once. And it's, you know, he was destined to do that. Like that wasn't a winding path. Like he, like that was pretty direct. 
I think one of the things about this field also that like a lot of us get bored with people, you know, like I, oh, yeah. I'm so, I don't understand how like the rest of humanity, so many people in the world just like live their entire lives and the only organisms that they ever think about are our own species. To me, that is just like un- unfathomable and like, and just like, I, I take such great comfort in being a part of a larger system. To me, it's so stressful to think you're the only creature in the entire world. And when you do you know, contextualize humanity within this larger system and then broaden your scope of reciprocity and relation to the rest of the world, it like kind of dials down the problems in your life in a way that I would be like a much more anxious person if I if I only thought about about people. Yeah. And, you know, and, and for me being in sales, you're dealing with people that aren't on that same wavelength sometimes. And, you know, like anything else we always talk about when, when you're working on a project, patience is one of the key. It takes time. Mm -hmm. And I try to, for as frustrating it can be sometimes it's like, well, I was there at one point, I was in their shoes at one point and it it took time for me to get there. I have to remember everyone goes at their own pace and Mm -hmm. maybe I can help foster that. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. And, and like the idea of plants as material, right? Like yeah. let's, that's a whole other topic. Right? Yeah. It's, anyway. it's something I own that's there to look pretty for me. Yeah. And it's just, and that's, that's, I don't even know how to say, I think that's learned responses and, and it's just tradition that people don't understand. And, and that's something we've talked about too, that slowly, like I, I always say, you know, you know, if you're a vegan, you didn't, you weren't born a vegan. You you might have been born into a family that was, but it took time. Like there were circumstances in your life that led you to make decisions to get there, and everyone gets that right to have that path at their own pace. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You can't just tell someone you need to do this. You have to kind of let them experience. So if you can go to a park like Brooklyn Bridge Park or things where they can learn and see it. And interact with it and, and see people that are further along in the journey or, or a little further behind. It, it makes it a little more fun. Like it, it – you know, I always think of uh, Into the Wild like when he realizes like I don't want to do this alone. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's great to, to experience some of this. And uh, trust me, I'm an introvert. I, I understand wanting that. But, you know, it's it's getting to interact with other people experiencing it too. That's That's part of the fun. But yeah. And this, I was going to ask this question, but it kind of came up naturally because, Rebecca, you do a lot of other events where you're doing presentations and webinars and that kind of stuff. How do you – one of our things we talk about all the time is we got to have to grow this circle. It can't mm-hmm. just be the people who care about native plants. We're not going to mm-hmm. be able to save the world, um, which I think we all kind of agree the world yeah. needs to be saved here with, with native plants. But um, we need to expand that group and get – the example I always use is the guy who wants to sit on his back deck and have the football game on TV and drink a beer, and he doesn't necessarily care what's in his garden. He just wants it to look nice. We need that person to be planting native plants too. What are yep. some of the things that you do to to help expand that circle? So I think that um, storytelling is always the right way to go when you're talking to the uninitiated and uh, and really focusing on the positive 
uh, of the things that are possible when you plant native plants or are ecologically minded in your management practices, et cetera. And I always think butterflies are the best possible subject because that connection of planting the right plant, not using you know, pesticides and then not cutting things back to spend, depending on the species. It kind of is this full circle of, um, that really makes the connections between what you put in the ground, how you care for it. And then, and then this thing that everyone wants, right. Which is a butterfly. And there's so many opportunities for people to realize, okay, a caterpillar is necessary. I'm not going to kill a caterpillar because I want this butterfly. There's so many people that have no idea that that is that there's even that relationship between a caterpillar eating their plant and then a future butterfly that they might enjoy. Yeah. And so really telling those stories is important. The way that I get those stories into people is that I do try and take the opportunity to speak to um, more like industry groups at times of like the uninitiated, right? Of people who are from traditional landscaping backgrounds and, um, and do try and spend some time talking about how they can talk to clients, which is always the thing. How do we do this? If we, you know, if our clients don't want it, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think that one of the big motivators in this shift is that um, there's money now in, uh, in this movement, right? And there's, uh, and people can charge more for an organic lawn than they can for a, uh, a traditionally managed lawn. And so I think that that has kind of changed the conversation and, and a lot of traditional practitioners are seeking out the knowledge for, for how to switch over to more ecologically managed landscapes. And just, I think, you know, all of us need to be like, really open and sharing. That's one of the awesome things about gardening, right? Is that we're all like, let's all talk and figure it out together. Like we're a really collectively minded group of people. And there's not a lot of egoists like wanting to keep a secret strategy for managing Japanese knotweed. And so it's just, um, I think that that's, that's my strategy. Um, but I'm always thinking about, I'm always thinking I'm still stuck in a bubble and I'm not getting to people. And what do you do? Like, Television. I don't even know how people. How it just doesn't make. I don't know. I don't well, know how to get people. Yeah. I, well, there there are a few ways, but before that, one of the things you know, when when you're speaking with business owners and you're trying to create a niche, why would you do what everyone else is doing? Why would you just want to be another lawn care company and and be part of the mass when there's such a need for some of these things where you can really carve out a good niche for yourself? The people want it. It's, it's there for someone to to pursue, but. Um, how do you reach people? We found this podcast was one of the ways. One of the the ways things that I love is is your newsletter. If you could tell us a little bit about your newsletter, because I I really look forward to that coming my way. Thank you so much. I really enjoy making the newsletter. So it is a monthly newsletter that comes out on the full moon, and it's free. And you can sign up uh, at my website, uh, which is RebeccaMcMacken.com. And what I try to do is give people real resources that they can use in order to do this work. Like if there's a guide that just came out for gardening for bats, that just is like the coolest thing I've seen in ages. And so getting that information into people's hands, introducing people to BoneApp, the Biota of North America website, and, and real tools of the trade that we all use that like new practitioners might not be aware of, new books that come out, et cetera. So there's a lot of resources, lots of opinions of mine. But then I think the real meat of the newsletter is this sort of like roundup of what's going on in the news, what's the new research that's coming out about these various strategies and, um, 
And, you know, the state of the monarch population uh, in Mexico right now is going to be in the next newsletter and what that really means for for monarchs in general. So it's kind of a, a roundup. It's also very much like all the cool things my friends are doing. Which is fun. That's, that's yeah. always fun. Um, yeah. and, and what is your website again for people oh, sure. to sign up? RebeccaMcMacken.com, and uh, there's a button you click that says newsletter. All right, awesome, and we're going to put that in the links on the website for the show notes. Cool. So if, if awesome. people are interested and go to, to our website as well, they'll be able to click on those links. What are some – and on your website, they'll see some of the work you do outside the park. What mm-hmm. what are some of those things that you do? So I – you know, as much as I love this job, I'm really excited to start doing more of the work that I have done outside the park. So um, I work I'm, – I'm a public servant, as I said, and I really want to stay in the public realm. And right now I do a pro bono garden design and install for a public landscape one, once a year. So I have worked with – public schools mostly, but also libraries and Quaker meeting houses um, to work with the communities there to design and install gardens. And so I get to do some design, which is really fun. Um, I also love teaching. Um, I've taught at the botanical gardens here for years. I love doing webinars. I am a total ham and (laughs) like love that stuff. And I think that outside of Outside of this practice, which is ecological horticulture, but very much related to it, is my real passion, which is pollination ecology. And that is something that I just can't imagine anything more beautiful and sexy, which is what are, what is, what are flowers trying to communicate? Not just an object, not just an organism, but it is a method of communication and, uh, and a way to have sex, right? And like, what is, and so that's a big part of um, what I do is also studying and then sharing that beautiful way that people can connect to the world around them through uh, flowers. Awesome. Awesome. Who right now in the field of ecology, who inspires you? Oh gosh, so many people. Uh, one of my big heroes just passed away. Her name is Carol Gracie. Um, and she wrote some of the best books on, uh, on wildflowers in the Northeast that ever, ever have existed. Um, there are amazing spring wildflowers of the Northeast and summer wildflowers of the Northeast. She's, she's just absolutely wonderful. And they, she looks at plants from an organismal perspective. So there's a lot of information about behavior, which is really, really hard. And most books are just looking at how to plant it in a garden, how much water it needs, right? But this is about reproduction and movement and like, what are the roots doing and stuff like that? Really the information you need to get to know the plant. Um, of course, I love Robin Wall Kimmer. I think she's amazing. <laughs> Everyone does it with good reason. She's really inspired me to um, not just learn about plants, but learn from them. And so, uh, which is like the vast, vast majority of our techniques that we develop come from careful observation. And so um, that's something I take with me throughout my entire life. Um, but yeah, so many different people. I think this is just such an exciting time because there's like sort of a merger of, of politics and horticulture and ecology happening and, and so many exciting people studying, you know, indigenous land use practices and let's like give the land back to indigenous communities who are much better than my people, at least on um, protecting biodiversity and that, how that ties into horticulture and public land and then how that ties into, you know, ethical labor management and all of these worlds kind of um, networking together. I think those are the most exciting things to me, not the individual disciplines, but the way everyone's working together to just like literally make a better world. It's all, you know, it, it's, it's funny that everyone is starting to inspire me a little bit. Like everyone that didn't 
you know, down to the the person that didn't have any interest that now has a little bit of interest and is willing to share and learn. It's I started a speaking of uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Anytime I have a friend or an acquaintance that tells me they now have an interest or they ask me a question, I just immediately mail them a copy of that book. And it's I've probably given out over fifteen copies at this point. But I feel yeah. it's a, a really good introduction if you're interested to a, a very non pushy way to get you into it's so poetic and so spiritual uh in a way that it should be um and i think a lot of mm-hmm. people miss that part of it and it's it's just that those are some great inspirations i agree 100 yeah. percent. do you have any questions before we ask um, our, our big off, finale? Well, i'm sure we could come up with a bunch more questions i could talk for another hour <laughs> <laughs> all right go ahead i'm sorry Oh no! I was okay. gonna say we we like to ask our our last scripted question, and that is, what is your favorite native plant? Oh gosh, I saw this on the list, and I like did not put enough thought into it because how could you choose? I know it's impossible. Um, I have a, a bunch, of course, but I forever love Magnolia grandiflora. Because that was that plant that um, sort of got me into horticulture when I said I fell into the like a group of ecologists, and I was with my friend Allie, and we looked at these. We were walking into the biology building, and there was these giant flowers, and um, and she was at that. She was the person who was like, "Oh, magnolia, of course, magnolia grandiflora," and I that to me that was like a major awakening that a plant had a beautiful name that was uh, just so amazing and that you could talk about what the pollinator was and where this plant was native to. It, just, it animated plants for me in a way that just had never had never happened. So that plant has just a very deep, deep place in my heart. Um, and, uh, and yeah, those flowers, I mean, they're just the best. And, and that's all part of the story. And I love that you're continuing, you know, that was one of the things that got you into it was the story. And that's one of the things that you're continuing to share, and I, I really appreciate that. Thank so you so sure. much. So this is where we do a final thought. Um, we kind of hand the floor over to you for however long you want it, and you can pitch something. You can summarize. Uh, you can use it however you want, but the floor is yours. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. Oh, there's no pressure. <laughs> there's no pressure. I think I, you know, yep. the way that I would like to use my final thought is to just encourage people to um, to keep going. Like we're doing such a good job and uh, at this movement, and to spread the word and share it with others. I'm really so so heartened to hear about the millions, like literally tens of millions of people, tens of millions of people getting into horticulture. More diverse people, more young people, more old people. Just like everyone is starting to wake up to this stuff, and and we are kind of the old guard here and we can welcome people in and make this movement um, a better a better movement even for ourselves, right? To stay open to change. Don't calcify. I know there's like lots of wars going on around what we should do with dandelions. And um, I just think that that it's wonderful that we're all still really open to change and open to evolving and adapting as uh, conditions require it, because that's really what the next century is going to require is, is all of us trying to figure out how to create ecologically healthy environments for, for really all of us. You know, that, that just made me think of when I was, uh, I had to do a, like a writing assignment. Like when I went back to college, like back in the, 
early 90s. And they they wanted to know, like, these are, are some of, you know, generations in the past. What do you see the future? And I, don't, I started it off with a quote from Daffodils by Wordsworth and just saying, I believe it will be back to nature. It's just weird, like, how all these things tie in. I'm, like, thinking of all the, <laughs> like, oh, wow, I did that, didn't I? Like, I forgot. Look, look where we are. It's just the, the journey is so amazing and what makes it i'm sorry tom you okay if i go like oh go yeah for, no go ahead. final yeah. thought because i'm like i realized no, yeah, i'm just taking the, right like, i'm just it. rolling yeah. into it part of it the journey is is meeting people and getting to interact and there's things that sometimes we forget that we all need to remember and, and we talk about them all the time patience have patience uh when dealing with this anything is possible and think the unthinkable because uh not everyone would have dared to put a park like this together like anything is possible if if we all work together and the other thing is have conversations um and how important this is i i legit forgot we were recording a podcast at one point today uh (laughs) and i just thought that we were having a a, you know a, a real conversation and it's that's important and that's how you continue to grow and it's important to continue to grow so just little reminders along the way to get you there i'm sorry can i make a comment sure is that out of no, go ahead. Uh, okay, super quickly. Yeah. I, it's just as you were saying that you know people are central to the ecological horticulture movement, and I think a lot of people don't recognize that. It is we are not going to stave off the apocalypse by separating people away from the nature. If we've got a shot at all, it is from reconnection. All of us, you know, moving back into healthier relationships with nature. And so just always keep that in mind that people are at the center of these movements. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Tom? Mine is a, a lot lighter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the, the joke I made at the beginning about the, the if you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. How many times do you hear that, like, living in Brooklyn <laughs> right, right no, next to the- <laughs> not enough. I appreciate you making that joke. Uh, it is always yeah. a good opportunity. Yeah. I just, I didn't know what else to say. So that's what came up. And I looked up where it came from because I'm like, I've heard this phrase so many times. And it was, uh, I guess it developed because of a guy, George C. Parker, who died like in the 30s. And, um, but he actually would go to like, I guess, Ellis Island area and meet immigrants and actually sell them the rights to the Brooklyn Bridge. Like, oh, you're sell, sell them the rights to the, yeah. and then, <laughs> then the people would go and try and set up like toll booths and stuff. <laughs> and the police would be like, what are you doing? You don't own this. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah so that's kind of how it all, all came sharing. about. So, but you can that. actually buy the, the Brooklyn Bridge now in NFT form. So, oh, there's another thing you can do. Of course. Are you buying it? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think you should be able to buy the native plants at the Brooklyn Bridge Park in NFT. Yeah. There you go. There's a there go. there's a fundraiser for you. Or just actual seeds. I like that. That was actually something – this is – I'm not to get too far off, but I was thinking about that as a fundraiser for somebody, and I don't remember who it was because there's a guy um, – it was basically the guy who the movie Jurassic Park was based on originally. Mm-hmm. He's a dinosaur researcher. I can't remember where he's from. But one of the things he does to raise money for his research is actually sell NFTs of what dinosaur or his research has shown dinosaurs looked like, and like Tyrannosaurus Rex basically looked like a, a, a turkey vulture. It's like kind of had a bald head with like a little ring around, and they all had feathers that were like really iridescent. Is his whole thing? So you can get NFTs of that, and I'm like, oh, that would be a really cool fundraiser for. I can't remember who it was. <laughs> who I was going to tell to do that. So well, someone can, yeah, someone can capitalize <laughs> on that idea now. Awesome. Awesome. 
All right. I think we're I think we're done. Yeah, so think? that's gonna wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Rebecca McMacken. For more information, you can visit her website, which is www.rebeccamcmacken.com. Um if you want to learn more about Brooklyn Bridge Park, uh their website is www.brooklynbridgepark.org. Uh and thank you for everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet. A uh, big thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Uh make sure you stream or buy their songs wherever you consume music or go see them live anywhere if you're in the uh, Philadelphia area. Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, don't forget about the question and comment line. Uh, the number is 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll play it on a future episode of The Buzz and answer it to the best of our ability. And if we can't, we're going to put it out there on the Facebook group. Uh, and speaking of the Facebook group, don't forget about the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Man, we've we've had, what, 200 new members lot, in the last yeah. week? It's been kind of crazy. So keep the conversation going over there. Uh, so you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com, but you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast, you can find us there uh, on platforms that allow you to. If you leave a five-star review, that really goes a long way to helping us. And um, and if you do a little write-up with that five-star review, I give you a shout-out on the our listener shout-out section of The Buzz. Um, you can also buy podcast merch at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. There's a little banner on top that says T-shirts. Click that. It'll take you to our Teespring store. And then we take all the profits from that, and we give it out to organizations who uh, who we feel deserve it because they're doing the right thing as far as native plants go. Yeah, we we don't keep any of that money. We've already contributed to two organizations, and we have a third. Can we announce it the next episode? Coming soon. Yeah, or, yeah or next buzz. Next, next buzz, we'll announce the, uh, the, orgi- the, the organization that we're going to help out. Um, I think that's it. Yeah. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. We have a buzz episode uh, coming up next week. Thank you for joining us. Rebecca, thank you so much. This was uh, really refreshing. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure. <laughs> uh, so make sure uh, you tune in next week, everyone. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.